All right, as we look at worship this morning, I want to just explore three different questions about worship, three different aspects of worship. I want to first ask, what is worship? And to identify what worship is. And secondly, I want to look at why it is that we must worship. And then thirdly, I want to address how it actually looks. What are the the nuts and bolts of worship, practically speaking, for us? What does worship look like on an individual basis? Not just corporately, but individually as well. And so again, for our definition of worship, what is worship? Worship is conformity to God's standard of holiness with our whole being in accordance with His revelation. It's worship with our whole being. If you actually look at the Greek word for worship, proskuneo, it means to prostrate oneself, to bow down, to bend the knee before God. It means to express your, with your attitudes and your actions an allegiance to deity. In our case, to the one true God of the universe. We want to express our allegiance to him through both our attitudes and our actions. And I think this is an important part of worship that we can often miss. We either fall on one end of the spectrum or the other. We want to worship God with just our actions or with just our attitudes, whereas true biblical worship requires that we honor him, that we ascribe worth to our God with both our actions and our attitudes, with our whole being. It's not merely an outward expression. In 1 Samuel 16, where uh, God is looking to have Samuel come and establish a, a new king to come and set apart and to sanctify David as king and anoint him as a king, he shows up at the house of Jesse and he's looking for this man. And he looks and sees the sons of Jesse, and right off the bat he sees Eliab. And he says, surely this man is God's anointed. This man is, is tall and handsome and big and, and muscular, and he carries himself, and he, he looks like a king. Like somebody coming in here and looking at Mark and saying, man, Mark is, that's the guy. He's got it all put together, right? He is tall, he is handsome, muscular, and if he doesn't have, his, have it together, at least his wife is making him look like he has it together, right? Um, that's who Eliab was. Eliab was a guy who he, from all outward ex- uh, impressions, looked like he was a king. But God said to Samuel, that, that's not the man. He said, God doesn't see as man sees. Man looks at the outward expressions, but God, he looks at the heart. God is concerned with the heart. He's concerned with the attitudes. And Jesus kind of reflects this same sentiment in Matthew 15, where he's quoting Isaiah, and he says that, This people, this evil, adulterous, wicked people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And they worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the precepts of man. They're just feeding me lip service. They're saying all the right things, but inwardly, they are whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they look good. Inwardly, they're they're a bunch of dead people. And Jesus wasn't satisfied with that kind of worship. We also need to know that we don't want to fall on the other side. Not saying that worship is only outward obedience. It definitely has to do with our our attitudes, with our hearts. But it also has to do with the whole being, right? So it doesn't exclude outward expression. Worship and obedience are definitely linked. They're inextricably linked. You cannot separate worship from obedience. 
in the previous chapter in 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel 15, where Saul is going to offer a sacrifice and he gets a little bit jumpy and he gets impatient with Samuel, who doesn't show up to offer the sacrifice in the time that Saul thinks that he should be there to, to offer the sacrifice. And so Saul, the king, not the priest, decides that he's going to offer the sacrifice himself. And when he does so, he gets rebuked nearly immediately by Samuel, who shows up and says, God isn't concerned merely with, with sacrifice. God desires obedience more than sacrifice. And so Saul is rebuked for his lack of obedience. Again, we see Jesus reflect the same sentiment. In John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Worship is all wrapped up in obedience. We can't say that we worship God and yet fail to obey him, yet fail to keep his commandments. 1 John 3, 24 says, The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. We know by this that he abides in us, by the spirit that he has given to us. Worship is all wrapped up in obedience. If we are truly desiring to worship God with our whole being, in both our attitudes and our actions, then we will be holy as he is holy. We'll be, we will be set apart as children of God, as those who want to reflect him well. We will love our neighbor as ourselves. We will do the things that God has called us to do. We will be anxious because he has called us to be anxious for nothing. The Bible is filled with, with imperatives, filled with commands that he has told us to do. And if we truly love God, like Christ said, we will keep his commandments. We cannot say that we love him, that we desire him, that we want to bow the knee before him. We want to ascribe worth to him and say how great he is and then turn around and neglect to do so, neglect to keep those commandments, those things that he has ascribed for us to do, not because we are trying to earn our salvation, not because we are trying to earn any favor with God, but because we want to worship him, we want to honor him, and he has told us what that looks like, what it means to truly honor and worship him. Secondly, I want to look at why it is that we must worship. Why ought we, why must we worship him. And I think there's really only one true overarching answer to this question. We must worship God because he is worthy of our worship. He and he alone is worthy of our praise, of our bowing the knee before him and ascribing worth to God. And though we are all, that is all of humanity, is made in the image of God, and we all have a, a desire, a need, a propensity to worship something, that's not what we're, we're talking about here. We know that everybody has within their heart a need to, to worship something, a need to ascribe that worth and that value to something, and it's often done in improper, idolatrous ways. What we're talking about here is how we worship the one and only triune God of the Bible. The one and only triune God of the Bible is not just a, a vague higher power, not a God of our own understanding or our own imagination, but God has told us what it means to worship him, the one true God. He says that he has reserved all worship for himself and for himself alone. Isaiah 42.8, he says that I am the Lord and that is my name. It's my name. It's not yours. It's not anybody else's. And 
I will share my glory with nobody else. God is a God who doesn't share his glory. In Exodus 34, 14, he says, you shall not worship any other God, but the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. He is in fact jealous for our worship. He is jealous for what is rightfully his. He and he alone is worthy of our praise. He and he alone is worthy of our worship. And he's not going to share that with anybody else. However, we get to the New Testament and we see that Jesus is worshipped over and over again. That Jesus accepts that worship and that praise. Whereas all throughout Scripture we see that men and angels, when they are bowed down and they are worshipped, they rebuke the person who does so. They say, you need to stand up right now because I'm not God. There is but one God and you don't worship me with the worship that is reserved for that God and that God alone. But Jesus rebukes nobody when he is worshipped. He doesn't tell anybody to stand up because he is rightfully worshipped. He is God. I just want to run through real briefly and look at a few examples of when Christ is worshipped in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 2, right off the bat, right when he's born, he is worshipped by wise men. Matthew chapter 8, the leper who is healed comes and ascribes praise and worship to Jesus and he doesn't rebuke him. In John 12, the Gentiles worship Jesus. Matthew 15, the Syrophoenician woman ascribes praise to Christ. In Mark 5, after this man who is possessed by a legion of demons is healed, he bows down and worships Jesus. The blind man in John chapter 9, the disciples in Matthew 14 after Jesus walked on water, in Matthew 28 at the resurrection, in Luke 24 when he ascends, they worship Jesus and he rebukes none of them. He accepts that praise. He accepts that worship because Jesus is God. And our worship is to be reserved for the one triune God of the universe. We are to ascribe our worth, his worth to him with our praise, the praise of our lips. Jesus is worthy of our praise and our worship. In fact, Philippians 2, great verse, says that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is worthy of all praise. And one day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that. Let's not wait for that one day. Let's, you and I, worship him in the here and now. Let's worship him with the fullness of our being, both our attitudes and our actions. And we have to realize that if, if we worship anything or anyone else, if we, even as Christians, we let our hearts stray and go off and, and worship something else, if we worship um, desire, if we worship passion, if we worship sex, if we worship money or things or leisure or family or work, if we worship a God of our own understanding, then we are askew in our worship. We are off. We are sinning in our worship, and we must repent of that and make ourselves right before God. There is but one true object of our worship, and that is God and God alone. And in worshiping anything other than God, anyone other than God, what we are doing is we are aligning ourselves with unbelievers. That's something that we certainly don't want to do. We don't want to align ourselves with the world, align ourselves with unbelievers, because it is impossible for those who are enemies of God to ascribe worth to God, to worship God in a true biblical sense of the word. We cannot worship God unless we belong to God. We must first be reborn if we are to worship God. 
we must be regenerated and made into new creatures to worship God. If we are enemies of God, then we can't ascribe praise and worth and worship to God. If we are by nature children of wrath, if we are in opposition to God, then he's not going to accept any worship. We're not going to have a desire to worship God. We must first be regenerated and made into a new person before we are able to come to God in worship. I've been bouncing around in the Bible a little bit. I want you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 with me. We're going to look at several verses here that talk about this concept of how we have to be renewed in our mind, renewed in our understanding. We have to be made into a new person. Christ was talking to Nicodemus in John 3. We have to be born again before we're able to ascribe worship to God. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Again, that that passage starts off by saying, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. There's a, a separation, a, a delineation that's being drawn out here between those who are of the world and those who are of Christ, those who have their minds set on things above, those who are in Christ. Keep reading with me in verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. You notice in verse 5 that all these things are really wrapped up in idolatry. So whenever it says um, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, it says that all of these things amount to idolatry, to false worship, to ascribing your praise to somebody else other than the one true God of the universe. We definitely don't want to be counted among those people, among the world, the lost, unregenerate people of the world. And then if we look at verses 9 and 10, it says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. To have a true knowledge of God requires that we be regenerated, that we be made new. We can't have a true knowledge of Him unless we are in Him. In Him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of knowledge. That means that there is no true knowledge outside of Christ. We must be in Christ to know Him, to worship Him as we should. And then verse 17, a great verse that really summarizes this whole chapter well. It says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to Him, to, through Him, to God the Father. We are to worship God with our whole being, whatever we do, in word or in deed. Now, I think we need to, to pause and just realize that when I say that the world is unable to worship God truly, they're unable to ascribe worth to Him, that doesn't mean that uh, God becomes any less worthy intrinsically. He doesn't become less worthy just because we are unable to ascribe that worth to God. And we can see just as the Son doesn't become any less 
intrinsically powerful. It doesn't become any less bright, any less um, fervent in its heat by uh, an eclipse. Jesus is the same way. Just because he doesn't receive that worship doesn't mean that he is any less worthy of our worship. When there's an eclipse, we're just unable to see the sun for what it truly is. We're unable to experience the heat and experience the light as it truly puts off. And when we are in a state of unbelief, when we are even as regenerate people not worshiping God as we should, that just means that we are not basking in His light. We are not basking in His glory. That doesn't draw any glory away from God. He is 100% glorious in and of Himself. We don't add anything to God, but we don't experience Him as we are designed to when we fail to worship Him as He has called us to worship Him. Worship of God is not for the unbeliever. It's not for the world. Worship of God is reserved for the church alone, for his bride, for his people, for the universal and invisible church of God. However, we must not think that worship is reserved for the church building alone. It's not reserved for these four walls. And I think we can often kind of fall into that trap where we think, well, I'm going to go and worship God because it's Sunday. Well, we should be worshiping God all throughout, right? We've talked in the series about how worship isn't just singing, but the whole part of the church service should be worshiping God. However, we shouldn't wait for the whole church service to worship God either. We should be worshiping God in our hearts before we come to church and after we leave. It should be something that takes place in our hearts. Again, with our whole being, both our attitudes and our actions all throughout the week, not limited to corporate worship. Corporate worship, when we come together as a body, that is unique and special to be sure. I treasure Sundays and my time with you guys. It's different being able to worship alongside the saints of Christ, those who love him, those who have been called according to his purpose, those who have a desire to honor and worship him. That is for sure different. However, that's not what we should limit our worship to. And if we think somehow that we can only worship God in, in this setting, then we are truly mistaken because God is just as glorious on Monday morning as he is on Sunday morning. God is just as worthy of our praise on Tuesday as he is on Sunday. And God is upholding the world by the might of his power all throughout the week just as he is on Sunday. And he deserves and asks for and pleads for our worship because that is what he is worthy of. That is what he deserves. Not just on Sunday, but all throughout the week. And I would say that if we only worship God on Sunday, then there's something seriously wrong with our theology, with our understanding of God, and certainly wrong with our, our practice of theology. That is not how God has called us to worship Him. And in fact, there may even be something wrong with our position in Christ. If we don't have a desire to worship Him throughout the week, and we are content to just worship Him on Sunday, then that may be evidence that you need to understand who this God is. You need to be introduced to this God. If you don't have a desire to, to worship him, you may, in fact, not even know him. Paul in 2 Corinthians tells us to test our salvation to see whether or not we are in Christ. And let me just tell you, if you have no desire to worship him throughout the week, then that should give you pause as to whether or not you are in Christ. If on Monday morning you have no desire, no ability to worship God in your office or in your home, then it's very likely that what was going on in your heart here on Sunday morning wasn't worship. 
if you don't have a desire to worship God, then you might not know God. And you should test your salvation to see whether or not you are in the faith. Another side effect of worshiping God. We worship God because He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship. That is why we must worship Him. But a side effect of that is that we are able to shine for the world. That those lost, unbelieving, dying enemies of God who are unable to truly worship God, that they can look in and they can peer into what we have in our ability to worship God. And they can be affected by the church. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. He says in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is a kind of circular aspect of our worship that you and I are able to look to God and we are able to see, well, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our worship. You are the creator of all things. You are the sustainer of all things. You are the one who came and and died for us to redeem us to yourself. And in doing so, we in return, in response, ascribe praise to God. And then our our people who are around us, the world around us, it says in, again, Matthew 5.16, that they are able to look and they are able to see your good works. And their response is to glorify God. They look to this God that we are worshiping and praising and they realize that he is worthy and they in turn glorify God. It's a, a circular motion of worship where we worship, they see the value, and they worship, they come to Christ. Philippians 2.15 says that we are to shine like stars amongst a crooked and depraved universe. We are to be set apart. We are to be different. And the world will see that. The world will respond. And if we don't worship, we're told in Luke, I believe, that even the rocks will cry out and worship because God is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship. And that is why we must worship. Thirdly, I want to address the question of, of what worship looks like. How does worship actually look? In, in large part, we've already addressed this question. We've looked at the fact that we, as Christians, we must be a new creation before we come to Christ, before we are able to worship Him. We must be regenerated and made new and given new life to worship Him. We must abide in the Spirit. As we saw in First uh, John three twenty four. the one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him we know by this, that He abides in us by the Spirit that he has given us. So we must be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, abiding with the Holy Spirit, being regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit, that we must worship him both in our attitudes and our actions, with our whole being. We must come to Christ, keeping his commandments and showing him through our actions as well that we want to worship him. But to look specifically at how we can worship God, how this looks, I want to finish reading out Colossians 3, starting again with verse 17, because it's, Again, such a great verse, an all-encompassing verse. Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, 
Do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. All of these things talk about our worship and how it is that we are to worship God. All of these acts are worship. When we submit to the Lord, when we submit to our King, our Master, our Friend, we are worshiping Him that when we live in accordance with what he has called us to do, that is us working out our, our worship of him, that when wives truly are living in submission to their husbands, husbands are loving their wives, that is honoring, glorifying our God. That is good, that is true, that is right, that is something that should be done. However, it's not always that easy. It's not always super simple to do these things that are just mentioned here in, in passing, seemingly, in just a number of verses uh, that encompasses all these different relationships, all these different aspects of life. Let me ask you, you husbands, a question. Do you think that you are more like Christ when you love your wife in response to her humble submission, in response to her living a lovely lifestyle that is walking with the Lord in accordance with Him, or when she's not that person, when she's not lovely, when she's not submissive, when she truly has a desire for her husband that is un- that reflects her sinful nature much more than her redeemed nature. Which one do you think is, is more Christ-like? We are called to love our wives like Christ loves the church. Well, <laughs> the church isn't very lovely, are we? Remember that God loved us when we were fallen, that he loved us before we were clean and redeemed and washed by his blood. He loved us when we were yet sinners and we were called to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And you wives, you might not always have a a husband who is somebody who is easy to submit to, somebody you think is worthy of submitting to. You might have a husband who is a, a jerk, a husband who is a dog, who is for his own good, not for your own good. But we don't have an amendment here that says you are to submit to your husband when he is living a godly life, when he is living as a man who should be submitted to. We are called to live these kind of lives, to abide by these instructions in Colossians 3, regardless of the person that, that we are interacting with. And I want to, to just propose that when we have a difficult situation in life, when life is difficult, when tensions are high, when it's not easy to, to act like Christ, this is when we have the greatest opportunity That when God has placed a, a difficult situation in our life, that we have more opportunity to worship God. We have a, a better chance, a better opportunity to, to be obedient to him when we're presented with these difficulties. You kids, 
especially my kids, you know that it's not always easy to, to listen to dad, to, to be obedient to your parents in all things when especially dad isn't um, listening to verse 21 and is exasperating and is living in a sinful way, not being patient, not being loving, not being kind. It's a lot harder to submit to your parents in those situations, but it brings more glory to God when we're able to do so. It gives us a greater opportunity to worship God when we love him and we obey him, even in difficult situations, difficult circumstances. Look with me again at verse 22 and 23. Speaking to slaves or uh, employees, we could make the, the principal application. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men. And just consider for a moment that Paul in first century was writing to these Colossians who were not under the same type of restrictions and regulations that we are today. There was no HIPAA in the first century telling employers what they must do and how they must provide for their employees and be kind to them and provide air conditioning in a proper work environment, right? I'm sure that they were operating under much harsher circumstances than we are today. And Paul is calling them to work well, to live well, and to do their best, to worship him in their obedience to their masters in all things. We can worship God by working hard, by being set apart, by not complaining and giving in to the, the ways of the world. We shouldn't identify how we are to work for our employer based upon how other people around us are working. But we should be set apart. We should be an example. We should do our work wholeheartedly as to the Lord rather than man. Again, it's an attitude issue. Our worship has to do not merely with our outward expressions, but with our heart. Are we working as for the Lord rather than men? And this same principle can really be applied to a number of different commands, a number of different instructions that we find all throughout the Bible, that when life is rough, we are in a, a testing, difficult situation that we are to realize that God has called us to rejoice in all situations, in all things, that he in his sovereignty has placed us into that situation. He knows what he's doing. That when life is difficult and money is tight and you don't know what to do, maybe you're dealing with a, a health struggle, uh, maybe you're dealing with the, the health struggle of a, a loved one, which is even more difficult than dealing with your own health struggle, to realize that God is the one who has placed you in that situation. God is the one in his sovereignty who has allowed those things to happen. And he has given us a unique opportunity to worship him, not just when things are going well, but when things are difficult, to be obedient to him, to be worshiping him with our whole being. And when we sit back, we wonder, what is, what's going on with life? My life is, is rough. I'm not my life, I, I seem to get up and do the same thing day after day. Whatever I did yesterday, I get up and I do it again today. And tomorrow I'm going to get up and do the same thing. And it can be difficult sometimes and repetitive. And we can wonder, what is the point of life? Why are we even here? What are we doing? What is my purpose? Our purpose is to worship him. Our utter and absolute purpose in life is to bring glory to God, to honor him. And we can do so in the very 
mundane things of life, the things that can seem tedious and repetitious and not fun to do. We can look at those as an opportunity to praise God, and we can thank Him for that, that opportunity that we are even able to see the fact that He is glorious, to see His splendor, and to be able to bow down and to worship such a God. There are, unfortunately, no lack of preachers in our society that want to tell you, yes, God has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for your life. Unfortunately, they continue and follow that up with, his plan is for you to be happy. His plan is for you to get what you want, for you to be wealthy, for you to be healthy. God has a plan for you and it's for you. It's all about you. That's not what scripture tells us. Scripture tells us that God's purpose for us in 1 Peter chapter 2 is to suffer. That's kind of contradictory to what many people in the world want to tell us. God's purpose for us is to suffer. And again, it gives us more opportunity to worship. It gives us a better understanding, a better state of mind to realize that He is the one who has placed us in this situation. He is the one who is going to deliver us from this situation. In Him, we live and move and have our being. Whatever we go through, we go through because God has put us there and He is our provider. And we can realize that even in the, the difficult situations of life, even when it's not so easy to worship God. It's, it's relatively easy to come here again in the, the company of brothers and sisters, those who love Christ and worship Him here. It's not so easy when you're changing a diaper or mowing the lawn or doing the dishes, doing these tedious tasks that you don't like to do to be able to praise God and to worship Him and to thank Him for the opportunity to worship Him. It's not always, our worship is not always clean, but it's often messy and ugly and filled with tears and uh, crying and calling out to God in frustration and pain. I love reading the Psalms for that very reason because David is real. And we can see his real worship, his real words with God. I want to read to you a psalm of his, Psalm 6, verse 6 through 9. And David cries out to God. He says, I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because all of my adversaries... Depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard my voice and my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. And then oftentimes David gets even so, so bold, so desperate as to seemingly tell God what to do, to seemingly tell God to, to hurry up because he's so in the, the throes of prayer and impassioned about prayer. And again, it's not always pretty. Uh, Psalm forty seventeen, he says, Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. David was real in his praise and his worship. He was real in realizing that it's not always nice and clean. And we can learn from that. We can reflect that. God already knows our hearts. God already knows what's going on in our lives might as well be real with him and share with him. And I think he's honored when we do that. He is worshiped when we share with him our, our needs and our hearts. We learn to serve Christ by serving others. 
We learn to worship Christ by serving others. Jerry Bridges, uh, an author, a Christian author, he tells of a story where one of his friends worked as a, a car salesman, and he did so for a number of decades. And his perspective changed once he came to Christ. He came to Christ in the middle of this career as a car salesman. And before he says that, uh, before he had Christ, he said that he sold cars. And afterwards, he said that Christ helped him to, Christ allowed him to help people to buy cars. So rather than just selling cars, he was helping people buy cars. His motivation changed. He wasn't just looking to get the commission from selling a car, but he was looking to get people into the right car for them rather than trying to to upsell them and to get them into the car that would give him the biggest paycheck and pad his pocketbook the best. He was serving people. And in doing so, he was serving Christ. He was worshiping Christ by loving people, by serving people. We can serve one another and, and really be served by one another by realizing that we need to do this together. We need to worship Christ together. We need accountability in our lives, in the way that we approach God and trying to make ourselves available to others for accountability and being open and honest with others that we need to be held accountable. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 talks about this in a fairly famous passage, verses 9 through 12, says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. And a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. We need to worship God both corporately and individually, both on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. And while the church, this building, this location, this time of the week truly acts as a a sanctuary for the Christian, it's a place where we can come, we can worship God freely and openly. We need to realize that we're going into the world. We spend the majority of our time in the world amongst unbelievers where we are entering into a spiritual battlefield where Satan is firing flaming arrows against us and he is consistently bombarding us with worldly influences and we need to prepare ourselves accordingly, realizing that the majority of our worship should take place in the world and not just in the church. We need to be intentional about what we allow to influence us when the world is always around us We need to realize that these precious moments, these precious times where we come together should be influencing our life and they should be structuring our our life more so than the influences of the world. We need to be wise about what we allow into our life. All throughout the, the Old Testament, God warned the Israelites of this to keep separate from these other nations, from these other gods who are going to come in. They're going to to influence you. They're going to pollute your mind and your understanding. This idolatry, which draws us away from the worship of God, is constantly around us. And so we need to focus our minds on Christ. We need to set our mind on things above rather than things of this world. It's a constant struggle that we're constantly uh, up against. And if we unite ourselves with one another, 
then we can be much more uh, equipped to go out into the world and to worship him in, at all times and in all ways. If throughout the, the course of this, this teaching, throughout the reading of Colossians 3 and these other passages, God has impacted you and impressed upon your heart that your worship is somehow misplaced, whether that's the, the object of your worship, whether you're not worshiping the one true God of the universe, you're worshiping something else or making a God of your own understanding, whether or not your heart perhaps isn't in worship, you're just going through the outward expressions, or perhaps the opposite. Maybe there is no obedience that is attached to your worship. Then we need to repent of that. We need to bring that before God and pray that he would give you the ability to, to worship him rightly. God is worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship. And we need to be more intentional about how we go about praising and worshiping God. And for you, Christian, we need to realize that we were created to worship. You were created to worship God. And yet you were recreated with the ability to worship Him rightly. As new creatures who have undergone the new birth, God has equipped you with the indwelling Holy Spirit, with His perfect word, and with His bride to enable you to worship him. And as you go into the world this week, let us set our mind on things above and intentionally make an effort to worship God, not just on Sunday, not just with our attitudes, not just with our actions, but with our whole being as we go into enemy's territory. Let's worship God as he deserves to be worshiped. God, we thank you once again that you truly are worthy of worship. You truly are worthy of praise. And we confess to you that we are inadequate, that we don't worship you as you deserve to be worshiped. God, help us to cry out with the angels that you are holy, 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 that you are set apart from all creation. God, help us to set our mind on things above, to constantly be in your throne room, realizing that you are God and we are not. God, help us to be set apart in this world that we would worship you in a way that would point others to you, in a way that would exalt you and lift you up and make you famous in this world. God, once again, forgive us. Help us to reflect you properly. I pray this in your name. Amen.